Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who rescues and redeems people. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would use our church in a, in a special and a powerful way because uh, you have thrown love on us. You have lavished love on us. And Lord, you have changed our hearts. And we do care about this community. And we care about those who are hungry and who are needy. And we want to bless them. So I pray that you would use our church. I pray that you would also use our church as a light of uh, teaching and, and biblical doctrine out in this world so that uh, there's a place that people can go to hear your word and to, and to meet you. I pray that you would use each one of us, that we would take responsibility to be the light on the hill. Um, Father, we need first, before we can be any of that, we need to abide in your word and abide in your love, and to know how much you have done for us. We need you to wash our feet before we can be of any use to this community. So I pray, Jesus, that you would use your word, you would use my uh, gifts and whatever you have done in me uh, to bless these people so that they can be your hands and feet in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our uh, message today is called Ripe for Redemption. Ripe for Redemption. I was going to name it Who's Your Daddy, but I didn't know if it was appropriate, so I named it Ripe for Redemption. <clears throat> but I told you about it anyway, so there it is. So inappropriate. So inappropriate. That's right. <laughs> All right, so the Bible is, is pretty awesome in the way that it was put together. It started with Genesis, and Genesis was if you could theme the whole book of Genesis, it's, it's of course beginnings and stuff like that, but the real kind of spiritual lesson was God choosing. God choosing how to save us. Choosing to save us. And so you had like Adam and Eve and they had a son and God chose one of their sons. Uh, and we saw how that worked. It, it wasn't necessarily God just arbitrarily chose, but there were characteristics. And if you recall, as he chose that son, as he chose Noah, as he cho chose uh, Enoch, as he chose this family line, the attribute that God zeroed in on was humility. You had this attribute. And then you had Abram and humility combined with faith. God is growing our understanding of what he looks upon with kind, what, what, what makes him happy. And so you had Abraham. And so the man keeps rebelling against God in the book of Genesis. And God keeps choosing men to use to save. And so he started with Noah. And he wipes out the whole world, but he chose Noah. And he, he saves the world. And then, then the whole world rebels at him again at the Tower of Babel. And so he says, you know what? I'm done with all of you but I'm going to make my own people, all the people of the world. You're corrupted, you're rebellious, but I'm going to make my own people. And so he starts with Abraham and he starts building his own people that he has chosen that he will eventually bring salvation to the whole world. So you have Abraham and Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has um, uh, Jacob. Uh, but, but there was Esau, right? Esau should have been the oldest. He should have been the one chosen, but God didn't choose Esau. Because Esau was prideful. Esau had no need for God. He was a man's man with the hair and the beard and all that. And he hunted and all that. So, but Jacob, he, he was keenly aware of his, his need for God. 
So you have the story developing with Genesis of God choosing, God choosing, and God bringing a plan, starting a plan to save people, save the world. So you have, then it goes down to Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of them being Joseph. There's a great famine. Joseph gets sold into slavery down in Egypt, and that's how we arrive in Egypt, okay? God chose Joseph to bring salvation to his family of about 70 people. Then you get to the book of Exodus, which we're going to study now. And the book of Exodus is going to be on a different theme, but it's the next progression. After God chooses, then he redeems. And the the theme of Exodus is redemption. We're going to talk about the word redemption lots and lots and lots and lots and lots over the next however long we're going to be studying Exodus. And it's really important that we understand God chooses as the first step. And then he redeems. He redeems. And then after we're redeemed, we would go to the book of Leviticus. What are redeemed for? We're redeemed to worship. And the book of Leviticus would tell us how to engage with worship. It teaches the people of Israel how they can worship the Lord. And after we're worshiping for a while, sometimes we fall and we make mistakes and we stumble. And then that's where you get to the book of Leviticus, how to walk through the stumbles and failures of life, how God deals with those things. So you can see how the Bible is put together the way that our walk is put together. Our time with the Lord, God chooses us, God redeems us. Then we start worshiping him and then we stumble in our failures and God works through those things. We could keep going and going and going, but there's the first four books of the Bible. We're going to zero in, like I said, on Exodus. All right. So the book as a whole, I like outlines. Anyone else like outlines? I love outlines. So I'm going to give you a quick and easy outline for the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 6 are our need for redemption. And you have the people enslaved. Okay, you were going to see the need for redemption. Chapters 7 through 11, we're going to see the power of the Redeemer. And those are the chapters that deal with the plagues in Egypt, the 10 plagues. You heard of those? Well, you're going to hear a lot about them. Chapters 12 through 18, we'll talk about the way of redemption. And this is where we'll learn about the power of the blood and the Passover. Then chapters 19 through 24, we're going to talk about the, the different behavior of the redeemed. The behavior of the redeemed. And this is where we see the laws which are God's heart and his character explained. Who God is, how he needs his people to look if they're going to look like him. And then chapters 25 through 40, we're going to see when the redeemed fail, what, what happens, what's that process like, and that is going to be described as the temple and all of its ministries, and everything that happens in the temple. So we're going to dive into the look of the temple, all the design of the temple, and how it speaks spiritually to us in our life so that we can have confidence when we fail. Anyone ever fail? Oh, goodness. So it's very important for us to know what to do when we fail. And that's, that'll be what we get to at the end. Now, the key verse, if you could look up Exodus fifteen thirteen. So I know you're in chapter 1, but zoom over to chapter 15, verse 13. And this verse is the key verse of the entire book. If you were to to summarize the book of Exodus, 
chapter 15, verse 13, is the key. I like how that looks, by the way. Good job on that. Uh, uh, It's the key verse. It explains the whole thing. So it says, in you, sorry, you in your mercy have led forth the people who you redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. In this one verse, we see the entire book of Exodus. We see their progress from Egypt all the way to the tabernacle, the place of his holy habitation. We see them from bondage to freedom. We see that from being slaves to being sons of God. That that whole change is described right in there. Look what he says. He says, in your mercy, right there, that mercy, we see the need for redemption. Those would be chapters 1 through 6. In your mercy, God saw our need and he had mercy on us. Then we see strength mentioned. This is the power of the Redeemer. This brings us to those 10 plagues, okay? Then we see the the words led forth. That's the way of redemption. He led them. He gave them instruction. He didn't just um, expect them to know. He led them. Then we see the words, the the holy habitation. This is the, the new life and ministry that is given to the people. So it's really neat how we see the entire outline of the book of Revelation shoved and compacted into that one verse. And like I said, Exodus is about redemption. But the crazy thing is the Jews didn't even know what the word redemption meant at at this time in their, their history. That was a very strange word. And it might be a very strange word to you too. Redemption. I, I mean, we, we know that you can redeem a coupon. Dana loves to redeem coupons. And when you redeem something, you, you give them a, a, a price, a, a, something that's required, and they give you back money or goods in exchange for that price. And so we, we, we kind of have the idea that redemption means to buy back or to buy something. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to really explore that word redemption. We're not going to get into it too much right now. We live in a time where redemption uh, theologically is well understood. I mean, if you go to church for a long time, you're going to hear about the word redemption. If you read the, the Bible, the New Testament, you're going to see the word redemption talked about a lot. But now, as we're living in 2000, what year is it, 17? We can look back to this, which happened like three, th- mm, like 4,500 years ago, 35, 4,500 years ago. And we can, we can look back and we can see that in the book of Exodus, God is painting a picture for us that clearly pictures redemption. He's doing it for us. And it's clear and it's accurate, the picture that we're going to see of redemption that's painted in uh, this book of Exodus. It's one of the clearest pictures in the whole Old Testament. Um, because in Romans chapter 15, 14, it says, whatever things were written before, which Exodus would qualify as being written before, Paul says, they were written for our learning so that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, may have hope. 
So everything we're going to see in the book of Exodus has a spiritual application to your life, just like we did when we were in Genesis. How many times in Genesis we saw God's grace pictured for us and and clearly illustrated and and defined like like, uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac? That's not just a story about a crazy dad. And that is a, a perfect picture of the sacrifice of Jesus and the foreshadowing of what God would do with his son sacrificing him on the same mountain and things like that, okay? So before we start in the scriptures, I want to give you 12 types or pictures that we're going to see in this book. And these are very important. Number one, we're going to see Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And this will be a type of us before we come to know Jesus. Israel enslaved in Egypt is Christians before they come to know Jesus. That's going to be the spiritual application that we draw. Number two, Egypt is a type of, anyone know? The world. Good job. Number three, Pharaoh is a type or a picture of, anyone know? Satan. Satan, the enemy. Number four, The terrible slavery of the Jews is a type of our bondage to sin. Our bondage to sin. Can I slow down? Okay, number one, Israel enslaved is us before we know Christ. Number two, Egypt is a type of the world. Number three, Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Number four, slavery is is a type of our bondage to sin, our slavery to sin. Number five, the groaning of the Jews under their slavery is a type of conviction and conscience of sin. The groaning of the Jews under their slavery is a type of the conviction of sin. Number six, the deliverer raised up Moses is a type of, who do you think? Ha <laughs> ha, you're so smart. Jesus, that's right. Moses is a type of Jesus. Number seven, the Passover is a type of the work that Jesus does on the cross. The work of the cross, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, is typified in the Passover. Number eight, the exodus of the Jews from Egypt is a picture of our separation from the world, our coming out of the world, becoming different than the rest of the people of the world, becoming new. Number nine, the Red Sea crossing will be a picture of baptism. Baptism, the new life. Number 10, the trials in the wilderness will be a type of the trials in our life after we come to know the Lord. Number 11, the law, the law given to the people 
gives us an idea or will teach us or typify for us what full surrender looks like. The law will show us what full surrender looks like. And I'm excited for those sermons. Number 12, the last one, the tabernacle which is the last 20 chapters of the book, basically, is going to teach us and picture for us the ministries and works that Jesus does in our life that never cease. The ministries of Jesus, how he continues to work in our lives and in this world. We're going to learn many ways, many things about Jesus pictured by the tabernacle. There's too many for me to list by one by one right now, or that's all we would do today. And I actually want to go through the first chapter. So, with all that being said, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man and his household coming with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All who, those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. I watched a great documentary this week on Netflix. I would encourage you guys to go home and watch it. It was called uh, Exodus, A Pattern of Evidence uh, on Netflix. So just, it's about an hour and a half long and it, it, it presented amazing proof of many of the things we just saw in that verse. It, we saw the place where Uh, They've discovered the place where uh, Joseph uh, built a little home up in Goshen. And it was was very interesting. It even had 12 pillars built in it. He kind of designed it half Egyptian and half uh, uh, from like the the Jewish type of architecture at that time, Semitic architecture. And and in this home, there was was a, uh, a very small pyramid. And in that pyramid was a like one of those mummy type statues uh, and it, they believe it was Joseph. And it's very interesting because the, the coat they've still found, it still has markings of a, being a colorful coat, all the different colors, uh, which is obviously pictures Joseph. If you remember, he had a, a coat given to him. It became kind of his calling card. He's always wore a coat, even when he was in Egypt. That kind of was his thing. And then uh, also... He had a very, uh, it's called a mushroom haircut. <laughs> That's kind of was, was the popular way for Jewish people to do their hair at the time. And this statue shows a guy with a mushroom type haircut. Also, his hair was red, which is not Egyptian either. And so you have this statue of a Semitic guy in the middle of Goshen at the exact right time when the Jews are supposed to be there. It's a very neat uh, thing. If you want to see those, check out that documentary. Uh, What else was it? He had a deal. I, I forget. There were some other details that are pretty neat. Uh, I'll, I'll pull out some more of them as we get uh, on there. And then we see evidence in Egypt of a large population growth, um, and, and that's what we see here. 
the book of Genesis showed and explained how man messed everything up, but God began the work of fixing everything through his sovereign choosing. He was fixing stuff, starting that process. You know, we were in the Garden of Eden, but we were cast out because of our sin. We had no more blessing, no more friendship, no more relationship with God. Cast out. As Trump would say, you're fired. And they were eliminated from the garden, kicked off the show. But then God chose Abraham to be the father of a nation of Israel, and a family of people that were supposed to trust God and walk with God and uh, like Adam was supposed to do. That's what God desired for Adam was just trust me and listen to me, walk with me, be my partner, my friend, and my counterpart. But that didn't happen. So this family begins, and they're started on the same principles. They're supposed to trust God and walk with God. And eventually, uh, through this family would come the Messiah, who is who? Jesus. And he would and could fix everything. He would save all the nations of the earth that have rebelled against God. So God choosing the nation of Israel wasn't that he was picking one group of people to go to heaven and everyone else can go to hell. No, he was picking a group where he could eventually send a Messiah to save everyone. And that's how you and I and all us Gentiles have now entered into the family of God. And here we see hints that God is already at work in this first couple verses of Exodus at accomplishing this amazing goal of restoring the blessings of the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land. And what do we see in these verses? That they were fruitful, they were multiplied, and they filled the land. How amazing is that? And this family hasn't done anything to deserve this. This family wasn't even supposed to be a family. They they had a hard time getting started. Abraham messed up with Sarah and, and they had Ishmael and with Hagar and they had all kinds of stuff. They tried their best to derail God's plans by not listening to him right at the beginning. And yet here we are a few hundred years later and we see that God has worked everything out for the good of his people according to his plan and their mistakes God has somehow twisted around to be good, to, to save, to bring salvation. And you might think in your life, I have messed up some stuff. I have done wrong. I mean, I have wounds from my past. I have divorce. I have mistakes that, that haunt me. God will turn those around in his love, not because you deserve it, but only because he is extremely loving and very merciful and very gracious. I want you to remember that because Satan will bring your past back into your mind. Has that ever happened to you? Oh my. And, and when we're just about to have confidence to trust in the Lord, I'm going to go witness that person. I'm going to talk to my mom about the Lord. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Take that step of faith. And we're just like, and then Satan's like, oh, but you were a jerk. Oh, you're right. I was. What if God's mad at me still? And we forget. 
that God has chosen us. He has called us. And your mistakes are washed away. But you don't know how big my mistakes are. Well, you don't know how big Jesus' washing is. He can wash it away. He does wash it away. And if you have any doubts that he has washed away your past and your mistakes, you need to call out to him one time in true faith and say, Lord, I believe in the bigness of your sacrifice, in what you did to wash away my past, and it is gone. And now you need to commit to every time the enemy comes and reminds you, you simply turn that around and say, no, Jesus took care of it, and Jesus is awesome. And that's how we grow past these past mistakes. That's how we get past that, and we can have victory over those things is through the blood of Jesus. So, God did all these miracles. He turned around all their, all their mistakes. He's got them down into Egypt, and now they're growing. Now they're growing. And they've grown into this big, big nation, this big family through these hundreds of years. And look what happens in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with, uh, with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's supply cities uh, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So, over the course of time, the people of Israel become slaves, and the, um, the actual period that they were slaves was between 134 and 280 years. They weren't slaves for the entire 400 years from, Adam to the, or from Abraham to the Exodus. They were slaves just the, the, the last portion of that. Um, now get this, the Egyptians already controlled them, but they weren't satisfied until they were abusing them and killing them. Now who does that remind you of? Satan. Satan. Okay? He already had control over these people, but he wanted to hurt them. And this shows us the evil heart that Satan has for God's people. He doesn't want peace treaties. He doesn't want to just live and let live. He wants to make you suffer, and he will keep coming after you over and over again. And this is why we can't mess around. We can't warm ourselves at the enemy's fire like Peter did. It gets us in trouble. We have to be so careful because his attacks will come, and they will knock you out if you're not ready. You know, some, sometimes we stray, and we just got to be careful. Jesus says, stay close to me. When a lamb goes and they stray, the shepherd has to go and get them. But if that lamb develops a, a habit of straying, the shepherd will get a little bit more forceful, and he'll say, hey, knock it off. Pick them up, 
bring them back. And then the next time, he'll pick them up and bring them back. But if it gets too long, you know what the shepherd will do? He'll take the little, his shepherd's staff, and he'll whack and break their legs. Oh, what a mean shepherd. What a jerk face. He, he's, uh, he doesn't care about that sheep. No, it's the opposite. He loves that sheep so much. He then takes the sheep with the broken legs. He puts them over his neck, and he holds them and keeps them close week after week as the legs heal. And the sheep, this is real, get so accustomed to the scent of the shepherd and the voice of the shepherd and the mannerisms and the actions of the shepherd that it bonds with the shepherd and creates a, a relationship where when he puts the sheep down after his legs have healed, he doesn't go off anymore. And you're like, I like to go to the bar every once in a while just because to have my fun. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to fight with you. But I know you have a shepherd. If you follow Jesus, you have a shepherd. And he will take care of things in his way. And it will always be loving and it will always be kind. But you can save yourself a lot of pain by not wandering off. Because he loves you enough to hurt you. And his intention in hurting you is not just to hurt you. It's not sport for him. It's love and it's safety and protection and your growth. It's, it's really amazing how he does that. <clears throat> but we have this enemy who's working here. He pictures for us our enemy, Satan, who loves to kill and destroy. Look at verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now, we got to understand something. The Egyptians were racist, very racist. They believed they were the superior race. And so um, when, when Israel went down there, there was always this separation. And we remember that the Israel, they were, they were farmers and herders and they had sheep and, and the Egyptians despised that part. But they liked Joseph. He helped them out. He saved them all. So they gave them the land that they could live in and the Egyptians lived right in the, the Nile-like area where Cairo is today, those cities. And, and up in Goshen to the north in the plains is where the Israel was. And Israel grew and grew and grew. Um, but Egypt didn't really associate with them except to say, we're your bosses. And they made them do that. And we wonder why this happened. But God did this for a very specific reason. It's because um, it, it maintained the purity of the nation of Israel. You see, if they had been in Canaan during this time of becoming... See, there was all kinds of Canaanite people. And those people were just wild and crazy. And they would have been like, hey, let's all get married. Let's all have a party. We're all fun-loving Canaanites. Let's go. And Israel would have been like, okay, and they would have intermarried with them and they would have polluted what God was developing here. And that's why God didn't allow them to grow up in Canaan, but he made them go down to Egypt where they were secluded, where as they grew, God could mold them the way he wanted to. Um, and you may think, well, why do some people not like me? Why do people some, well, maybe the Lord is protecting you. Maybe the Lord has a plan. I remember thinking, I was not a popular kid in 
junior high and high school. You remember junior high? Anyone else have a fun time in junior high where you basically would rather die than go to school? That was junior high, right? Most of us I, were not the popular guy. I mean, you played football, so maybe you were super popular. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, I just learned about that this morning. You know, it, it's a tough time when, you're, when people don't like you. But I know that God used it in my life to teach me humility. And uh, so, you know, why don't some people like you? Well, I don't know. But maybe the Lord is protecting you, and I know that the Lord is using it in your life for his glory. Uh, you don't need people to like you. You don't. Just follow the Lord, and he'll take care of it. All right, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, in whom the name of one was uh, Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast him into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So Pharaoh comes up with this evil plan to kill all the baby boys. Why does he do that? Well, very practically, girls are easier to control. They don't fight in wars. So he was trying to eliminate Israel's army. Pharaoh is trying to weaken the people of God. Now, spiritual application, Satan is always trying to weaken the people of God as well. And this is why it's so important for families, like the families in our church, to raise boys who will be men of God, leaders willing to lay their lives down for the strength and protection of the people of God. I love this picture. Our young ladies need to have young men who know how to resist the enemy in faith and love, don't they? But Satan, he is targeting the young men. You guys, right here, you three. You have the biggest bullseyes on your heart from Satan. And you. Satan, is, he's targeting them. He's always had this plan. Remember Herod? Herod got the same. Where do you think he got this idea? Satan. Satan's always had this plan. Even in the book of Revelation, we see it pictured as the dragon is trying to eat the Messiah as he's born from the woman, the nation of Israel, you just see this over and over again, Satan wanting to destroy God's plan. And God loves families. And God loves young men growing up to know him. And here, Satan is against that. Satan also, look at our, look at our current events today. Look at the nation of Israel. Isn't it? funny how many nations are committed to the destruction of the nation of Israel. And this anti-Semitism, Hitler 
typified it. Why did Hitler want to kill the Jews? It's so interesting. Satan always puts it into the heart of people to kill Jews. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Why doesn't he just want to kill everybody? Well, that would be fine too in Satan's eyes. But his real purpose, is his most intense plan is to kill Jews. Because, why is this anti-Semitism so prevalent and so satanic? It's because if Satan can succeed in killing all the Jews, then he wins and God is a liar. Why? Because God has made promises concerning the Jewish people. Not only do the Jews in and of themselves, just their existence, prove that God is real and prove that God has a plan in this world and has, and has done many things to engage with our world, but he has made promises about the future of the nation of Israel and the people of the Jewish race. And so God has, this, has still been protecting the Jewish nation even through their dispersion the last 2,000 years in our life. And what we see in our lifetime of Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 is the beginnings of God reestablishing this people and working in their hearts to get them to receive the Messiah. And we see that played out in more end times discussions. And we'll see lots of actual end times discussions through this book of Exodus. We'll see that. But this anti-Semitism, this hatred God puts in the heart of many people for the Jews is satanic. It is absolutely satanic. Um, But God's reputation is on the line with the Jewish people. If he allowed Satan to kill all the Jews, he would be proved a liar, and that can't happen, right? Um, So what we see here in the book of Exodus is this big, huge power play of spiritual forces we're, we're seeing like Satan who, and his demons who are in Egypt and they kind of run the, the land down there. And then we see God who's going to kind of break through their power. And over the whole book, we're going to see uh, God is going to rescue his people and he's going to show himself to be more powerful than the spirits and the Satan and the demons that the Egyptians worship. Satan has his people. In, in here, they're the Egyptians, okay? They, he has his own army, and they worship him, and they follow him. And they're sincere, but sincerely wrong. Uh, they, they're even empowered by him in some ways. They receive certain kinds of power from worshiping Satan. Satan has a control over them, because there's always a tax to pay, right? Um. They're committed to his ways, and his way can be chiefly defined as rebellion. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about the world and, and what it, what it, how you can describe the world is basically rebellion against God's will. And that describes what they're doing. That's the way the world looks. But now God, he's coming to the world's spiritual scene with power. And God is going to declare war against the kingdom of Satan through this book. God is going to be hatching his own plan, creating his own people. And Satan knows this, and he's not going to go down without a fight. Because Satan loves to have people worship him. He loves receiving worship. You remember, he was the worship leader in heaven. 
That was his role. And so it's his perversion of the way things ought to be in heaven when people worship him. It's funny. Pharaoh thinks that he has enslaved the Jews. He thinks that he is free to do whatever he wants. But in reality, he is the one that is enslaved to an evil spiritual being. He is. He's a puppet. He is a son of Satan, you could call it. That means he has the same heart that Satan has. A heart that can only be described as prideful, rebellious. That's what we're going to see in Pharaoh. I want you to turn real quick to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Satan is described here in the book of Isaiah. And this description is going to kind of help us even understand what Pharaoh is going through, what all the sons of Satan, do you think there's sons of Satan in our city? Yes, there are many sons of Satan, people who have that same heart. In fact, the whole world is filled with that. In fact, you used to be filled with that. In fact, you still are. There's a part of you, your flesh, that still has this son of Satan desires in it. But look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, another name for Satan, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Didn't we see already? That was the heart of Satan's plan, was to weaken the people of God. Well, here he's, he's doing that to everybody. He's weakening the nations. For you said in your heart, Where's this come from? The heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. These are all pictures and old school types of heaven. The north mountains, it's all heaven. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, the heart of pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. And Jesus did the kicking. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning when he sent out the 70 and they were able to kick out demons uh, in the New Testament. They, they go out, they, 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 they cast out demons and they come out and they're super excited and Jesus said, don't be excited about that. I did that a long time ago. I kicked out Satan and it was a party. Well, um, we're going to see that this heart of pride has thoroughly infected Pharaoh. He is a son of Satan like you wouldn't believe. He's a wonderful type of Satan for us. So get this. In reality, he, he's the son of Satan, which means he's an image of Satan. He's a spitting image of good old dad. And that's also what's meant when we put it on the other side and say son of God. Son of God. Who is the son of God? Jesus. But who also is called sons of God? We are. We become the children of God when we believe in Jesus and are filled with his Holy Spirit. 
We become like him. We take his life into us and we obtain by his then uh, we obtain all this by his spirit through faith alone. We become like him. We start to look like Jesus. We start to act like Jesus. Jesus takes a spiritual tattoo gun and he, he starts to tattoo in our hearts the word of God, the law of God. He starts to make us want and desire holy things instead of rebellious things, which is the opposite of what's going on with Pharaoh. He wants and desires rebellion and pride. Well, we're the opposite of that. Our natural life, our flesh, the one we're born with, the one that comes from Adam that everyone's born with, you know, that got kicked out of God's home, kicked out of Eden. You know, we're all born with that sin nature. We're all born with this all-consuming desire to rebel. We're kicked out of our home, you could call it. And we were spiritually under the leadership of the chief rebel, Satan. He was our father. He was our father. But give thanks to God. We now can praise God because he redeems us. He steps in and he saves us when we had no idea how to be saved. The children of Israel at this point in the book of Exodus, they need to be saved. They have a need to be redeemed. That's all they have is this need. And God looks upon them and he loves them and he purposes in his heart, I am going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. Pharaoh has them under his control. He's persecuting them. He's killing them. He hates them. How do you think God is going to begin the process of redemption. Maybe, maybe, maybe a strong person is going to come on the scene. Maybe bolts of lightning from heaven. Maybe X-wings fly in. Or maybe He's going to use the unusual birth of a baby boy to begin this process. Yes, a humble little child is going to come and he will be the hero that brings salvation to these people of God. That's how God is going to do this. Because God doesn't change. God exalts humility. Moses, we're going to see next week, the baby comes on the scene. And God, through his power, he turns what people mean for evil and he turns it around and brings salvation instead. What an awesome, awesome father that we have. He knows that we're born and we're, we're following Satan and, and we have this heart of rebellion. But he looks at us and he says, I want to save you. I want to redeem you. And watch how I do it. It will blow your mind. Use a little baby. I'm going to start things out small. And as you trust me and as you see my gentle love, 
you will learn to walk with me. It's so neat, okay? I want to refer back now to Exodus 15, 13, okay? Our, our theme verse for the book of Exodus is this verse. Moses, they've just come out of the Red Sea. They've, they've, God has saved them. God has rescued them. And Moses sings this song. And he says, you in your mercy have led forth the people who you redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. 